Okay, hi everybody. We're here with Mac Cronin, who authored the Forensic Science Affirmative NK Snag for the Camp Starter Set. Uh, Mac, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, hi, I'm Mac. Uh, I currently am a assistant coach at Robert McQueen High School in Reno, but uh, relocated in the last month to Santa Rosa, California. And I debated in Reno, Nevada in high school and then went on to debate and actually be coached by Matt at uh, Wake Forest University for four years. Go Deeks. Go Deeks. <laughs> Okay, so tell us a little bit about the AFUCAT. Can you just give us an overview of the Forensic Science Affirmative? Yeah, so the AF itself amends uh, Article 4 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, which became law back in 1973 when the Supreme Court took a pretty lengthy process, almost two years, and a bunch of judicial community meetings to establish the federal rules of evidence. And they formally announced that they wouldn't be law until Congress passed them into law or enacted them, which happened later in 1975. So there's a lot of uh, rulemaking authority that is explicitly allowed to Congress, and Article 4 in particular is all about evidence and the use of evidence in criminal proceedings. So the Daubert decision, which uh, sort of put into effect the way that forensic evidence is evaluated in a con uh, the court setting currently made it so that judges ultimately have to determine prior to allowing the evidence to be introduced whether or not uh, it meets a certain standard of validity and whether it's sort of accepted within the scientific field. So the advantage itself really focuses on how the application or lack of guidance on those rules causes the judges to need to have a certain level of discretion or understanding of forensic science that they just don't have. Uh, and that becomes even more problematic once the sort of implications of police and forensic scientists being very closely linked and how prosecutorial interests really affects forensic science as a field uh, establishes the sort of conditions of bias for wrongful convictions. But um, the plan by amending Article 4 in particular allows for that special relevance rule about non or non-DNA forensic evidence. Uh, so certain tests that have a lot more air but are still framed as like objective and more true because uh, of the science behind them are allowed to have more strength in the courtroom and they particular, particularly persuade juries. So part of a special relevance rule as a procedural right means that a judge is required to sort of explain uh, to a jury how that evidence should be evaluated and what sort of, I guess, errors or lack of validity or falsifiability exists within that particular field of science as well. Uh, that's really the majority of it. There's definitely a lot of uh, sort of conversation between the courts and Congress about what powers are exp explicitly allowed to each branch. So a lot of the evidence does talk about court rules, but ultimately it is Congress that has to sign those changes to rules into law. And sorry, I have a kitten running around attacking cables. <laughs> no worries. Um, before we move on, uh, could you talk to me a little bit about the advantage ground and, and what those uh, erroneous tests might mean? Yeah, so let's see if I can try to talk through some of the evidence. The Lauren evidence, uh, 
is definitely about the internal link. It sort of talks about the confirmation bias and the uh, lack of lab independence issues. So because the judges ultimately have to act as uh, those gatekeepers for evidence and determining their validity and whether or not they should be introduced into a trial, uh, that allows for a lot less uh, nuance to actually be explained and there's a lot more emphasis on expert testimony. So as a result of there not being this clear sort of procedural guidance that falls under like constitutional rights and uh, what some of the solvency evidence talks about is like habeas corpus rights, then the defense doesn't have the same opportunities to contest it. And there's always going to be this sort of prosecutorial bias uh, that in particular affects uh, people of color and African-American men when death sentences are on the books. So because uh, especially it's even more troubling when we hear things like innocence project statistics about, you know, people being convicted on forensic evidence and then later using DNA evidence to dispute the forensic evidence that was originally proposed in those trials. So it's definitely even in those exonerations, there's a prior issue with the way that forensic evidence has been used, things like bite marks, hair tests, fingerprints. Uh, you know, fingerprint tests only end up being like 55% successful and actually finding like a true match. So there's really a lot of uh, false accreditation that forensic evidence gets in the courtroom that the AF is sort of necessary to clarify how those things are used and why there's a procedural issue in admitting certain types of evidence. Thanks for explaining all that to us. Uh, is there a part of the file, and I know you've already talked about the solvency mechanism in detail, but is there a part of the file other than that that you think is is fairly tricky, either to understand or from a sort of strategic argumentative standpoint, what's the what's the good arg the F should be aware of? Yeah, I think, you know, because the solvency mechanism is so technical, it definitely gives it good Fed key warrants, good reasons why Congress is sort of the ultimate authority to make these things become law. Uh, but I think that also is tricky because without the clear explanation of for the federal rules of evidence in particular, why congressional action is key, it could definitely be suspect to some agent counter plans. And I think because it is the federal rules of evidence, the state's counter plan is not super clear, but just because each state has their own sort of criminal process rules for their own courts, uh, I think there could be like a good state's counter plan argument there, but I'm not sure what the direct one-to-one -one is between federal rules of evidence and then all the individual state rules of evidence, which are obviously not uniform in any way. Uh, so I think just understanding the agent definitely helps explain um, out of a lot of like potentially competitive agent counter plans. And when it comes to things like the elections DA, it's more of an aspect of administrative law. So uh, I think again, sort of using the agent could shield the link, so to speak, uh, to, you know, explain why there isn't so much politicization of this conversation that the courts and Congress sort of have with each other about procedural rights and rules to be enacted. Thanks. And so the last question I have for you is, uh, what should the negative know? How do you, how do you beat this AF when you're negative? 
Yeah, I think definitely going the counter plan disad route. Uh, I think some of the things that I said about the agent in particular uh, definitely come into play just because so much of the evidence ultimately does talk about how rules uh, and enacting new rules affects the outcome of trials. So I think there is definitely a good argument to be made for a Congress counter plan just based off or excuse me, courts counter plan uh, because of the way that uh, these powers have sort of been delegated to the courts before. So it's definitely an interesting relationship where, you know, you have Congress being like, we're going to allow the federal judiciary to sort of establish these rules for themselves. And we're just going to kind of green light anything that comes before us. So even though the power lies in Congress to physically enact those laws into the law, uh, the courts definitely have a very strong role in drafting and sort of determining what those rules should be to begin with. So definitely an interesting issue about uh, sort of how powers are allowed to each individual branch. And you could, I think, definitely generate more competition based off of disadvantages as to why one particular method is more problematic than the other. Uh, but I think definitely debating the case will be a big important part of answering this affirmative too. I mean, uh, the impact is definitely about the death penalty, which the AF itself doesn't really end. So I think there's definitely some good solvency arguments that, you know, beyond just uh, allowing people to prove their innocence in a more, uh, I guess, scrutinized way against DNA evidence or non-forensic, non-DNA forensic evidence. Uh, there are certain things that app doesn't do that the impact is definitely, I think, talking about. So pointing those out, I think, will help sort of win back some of the impact framing against the very focused probability and, uh, oh my goodness, no war scenarios. Uh, but also, I think some of the solvency arguments themselves are very persuasive that, you know, even if we establish new uh, rules for validity and for testing uh, within the courtroom. It's not really an issue with the laws themselves, but how people actually present that evidence and how juries sort of behave. So I think there are definitely arguments uh, that I would find pretty persuasive that there are sort of these social and psychological factors that transcend just some evidentiary rule that uh, cause that sort of bias that the advantage and uh, talks about and that the solvency mechanism tries to rectify. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us and explaining all that, Mac. Yeah, See you later. of course. Have a good day.